You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll find out if a nudge really is enough. Well, the evidence at the moment is pretty thin. And how telemedicine will affect your practice. There is an incredible policy interest in this whole field of telehealthcare and there are a number of drivers for that. But before that, I'm joined by Richard Hurley, Deputy Magazine Editor at the BMJ, who's here with his pick of the week. Hi, Rich. Hi, Duncan. So, uh, what's the first one? I think we've got a review. Uh, Yes, I wanted to talk about um, a review of uh, the Joy of Statistics, um, a television programme presented by Professor Hans Rosling, um, uh, who's Professor of International Health at Sweden's Karolinska Institute, he had a, a cracking TED talk that went down very well all over the internet. Oh, and okay, I think that great. Led to this program, I see. Yes, a very enthusiastic presenter, and uh, we posted a review online um, by Charlotte Price, um, who's a lecturer in biostatistics at Birmingham University. The review is called "Statistics Doesn't Need to Be Sexy," um, and that's a reference to an assertion that um, Professor Rosling took delight in in his program where he called statistics the sexiest subject around. Dr Price doesn't uh, agree entirely with that. She cautions that that we have to take care with presenting statistics. She thinks that rather than, you know, trying to look at very simplistic um, statistics and trying to make them attractive, you need to embrace statistics as a subject in its entirety and that a little fear of statistics is probably a good thing. (laughs) Okay, what's next, Rich? Well, something else that I thought was very interesting was a personal view that we published um, this week um, by Sheila Bird, who's a senior scientist at the Medical Research Centre Biostatistics Unit in Cambridge um, and two co-authors. Um, they're arguing that uh, judges should base sentencing decisions on um, hard um, evidence, scientific evidence, in exactly the same way as doctors should be prescribing treatments. Sure. Is there good evidence for making those decisions or is that uh, something that she's calling for as well? Well, that's pretty much what she's calling for. She's saying that doctors and health professionals, um, with their experience of using evidence-based decision-making, should be advocating for randomised trials in, in the decisions that judges are making about what to do with people convicted of crimes. And uh, she and her co-authors argue that doctors are well-placed to explain the importance of evidence-based approach and to confront some of these common objections. I see. Um, Well, I suppose it's not that long ago that uh, the evidence-based medicine movement had to change the mind of of doctors and policymakers in that sphere, so maybe we'll see some some movement there in the future. That's right. She draws a a parallel with the fight for evidence, evidence evidence-based reasoning in in medicine. Great. And uh, what's the last thing you've chosen this week, Rich? Well, I was also interested to read Margaret McCartney's uh, piece. She's a a Glasgow GP, um, and she's been investigating ATOS, uh, which is the sole contractor charged with providing uh, these work capability assessments for the Department of Work and Pensions. About a third of the um, about a third of the decisions um, are appealed, and two fifths of those appeals are successful. What did uh, what else did you find? Well, many clients with serious health conditions have been found fit for work, including those with Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, terminal cancer, bipolar disorder, 
heart failure, strokes, severe depression and agoraphobia. And McCartney asks at the end of her piece, as things stand, how sure can ATOS doctors be that they're doing their professional duty? Yep. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Duncan. And all those articles and more are available in the print BMJ through bmj.com and now on the BMJ's iPad app. Now, a nudge in health terms is something that will make us improve our health-related behaviour, but importantly, without legislating or changing pricing. It's an idea that's been turned into a book by Thaler and Sunstein called Nudge, which has captured the attention of politicians both here and in the United States. But how effective is it really going to be? To talk about the evidence behind the nudge, I'm joined by Teresa Mato, Director of the Behaviour and Health Research Unit at the University of Cambridge. So, Teresa, this idea is the flavour of the moment, but it's not a new idea, is it? No, um, the ideas date back over 100 years to much of psychology and sociology, which have observed that people are far more sensitive to their environments than many would, would recognise. So it, it, it builds on that um, and brings some new observations to bear. And it's such a simple idea that it has captured the imagination. Mm. Where does this kind of nudging work? Well, the evidence at the moment is pretty thin. There has been a study in America looking at school, uh, school canteens and they found that, indeed, placing fruit at the checkout increased the proportion of fruit that was bought by around 70%. There's another recent study that was um, described in which supermarket trolleys were divided down the middle um, with a picture of attractive fruit and vegetables at the front of half of the trolley. And that did increase the amount of fruit and vegetables that were bought. So I think that both those illustrate how people are sensitive to their environments. We can change what they buy. It's a whole other question, um, how that affects what they consume overall. And more importantly for population health, the extent to which those small changes will be shown to have any effect on the kinds of health outcomes we're looking for to reduce rates of obesity, rates of cardiovascular disease. Mm. So the examples you described there are things that are quite simple. You know, they're, they're little action changes that, that right. have prompted people to do this. Exactly. Um, but something like improving cardiovascular disease requires, you know, people to take more exercise overall. You know, it's a, it's a much bigger thing. Yes. So is there any evidence that nudging helps on that kind of scale? Well, it would be unrealistic to expect these small nudges to have those big effects. And it may well be that it would be uh, an accumulation of nudges. But I think in our analysis, what we find more concerning is that these small nudges in a positive direction don't seem to stand much chance when we've got much more potent nudges pointing in the other direction. Mm. So the example would be the widespread availability of cheap and very attractive foods, high in fat, salt and sugar. And again, thinking about our, our built environments in terms of making it much much easier to get in a car than to walk or, or cycle. So these are very powerful um, 
shapers of our behaviour. So if we go back to the examples that we were talking about, those small nudges, sure, it's going in the right direction. But the big question is what kind of impact that can have if nothing is done to alter the environment, which is pushing us very effectively in the opposite direction. Mm. And I suppose that comes back to this this tension between you know, uh, that governments want to improve health, but they also don't necessarily want to to legislate. So what's going on at the moment in the sort of health arena? Well, the government's plans for public health in England involve a range of sectors, including the commercial sector, working together to find ways to encourage people to be healthier. And at the moment, this the, the current government has set up a responsibility deal, which is formalising that discussion. And I believe that in the next month or so, they're hoping to publish pledges where they have industries signed up, so this would be the retailers of of food as well as alcohol, signing up to voluntary agreements to change environments to make it more likely that people are engaging in healthier behaviours. So this would be buying healthier foods and buying less alcohol. So this is still at an early stage, um, but my understanding is that there is enthusiasm uh, around evaluation, and that's going to be absolutely critical. And any um, the, the evaluations will need to be robust, so we will need to see that there are goals which are important in terms of improving population health. We don't just want people buying half a bar of chocolate less a week. Yes. Um, and also that there are robust evaluations that are conducted independently. But I I think that's going to be absolutely vital because there is a huge amount of scepticism, which is understandable, but it's very important that any initiative like this generates evidence so that we can learn how much an initiative like this can deliver and then turn our gaze on other additional ways of trying to change behaviour to improve population health. Sure. I mean, do you have a personal opinion about uh, nudging versus legislation on on health matters like this? My opinion is driven by the evidence, as you would expect, as a researcher and director of this new unit. So at the moment, we can say looking at the where the emphasis lies at the moment in the current strategy that's outlined in the Public Health White Paper, that... There's a limit as to how far um, we're going to get. Um, And the evidence from uh, the past would suggest that it would be, we we would be neglecting the more potent ways of changing behaviour if regulation and pricing weren't considered. Theresa, thank you very much for joining us today. And the analysis article, Judging the Nudging, is available on bmj.com. Now, telemedicine, literally medicine at a distance. I'm joined on the line by Aziz Sheikh. He's a professor of primary care research and development and a member of the eHealth Research Group at Edinburgh University. Thanks for joining us, Aziz. It's a pleasure. Now, you've written this clinical review on telemedicine, and that kind of conjures up images of surgeon robots operated from across the world. But you're talking about a much more everyday use of this. Yeah, the term that uh, encompasses use of a broad range of technology, but in essence refers to 
the ability to um, facilitate communication remotely from a distance. There can be a variety of uh, telecommunications media used, ranging from something very simple and ordinary like the telephone, for which it perhaps is the greatest evidence base, to, to the more complex, sophisticated, integrated technologies that are, are now becoming available. How omnipresent is uh, telemedicine, telehealthcare? It is actually being quite widely rolled out in, in many parts of the world. There is an incredible policy interest in this whole field of telehealthcare, and there are a number of drivers for that, uh, ranging from patient expectations to the fact that in view of changing demographics and disease profiles, we need to develop new models of care that are perhaps more efficient. So, I mean, whilst I think most people will appreciate the policy drivers, there is sometimes a gap between those drivers and the actual evidence base in support of these approaches. Mm. Now, you've given a few examples in your clinical review of the kind of telemedicine that you're talking about here. Do you have any particular one that you think was a, you know, a paragon of, of how it should be done? That, that's quite difficult to say. I think there have been some very good examples where issues have been thought through. And so, I mean, for example, some of the studies that we've done, we, we've considered these issues in, in depth. And, and what we found in some of that work is we can show satisfaction, accessibility, but what we weren't able to do is demonstrate any Im- improvement in quality of life considerations. And then obviously, I mean, if you don't demonstrate the effectiveness, you can't demonstrate the cost effectiveness. Mm. I guess the flip side, I mean, there are some interesting developments. There's recently been a very large uh, trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine from the US where they've been looking at uh, telephone consultations for a range of chronic disorders uh, and uh, finding um, some quite positive effects from that trial. So, I mean, it is relatively early days. There are some interesting uh, studies which are being conceived, which are being undertaken, but but the results are, at the moment, pretty mixed. Sure. One thing that that patients and doctors as well will be concerned about is it's missing something or misdiagnosis, a a problem that the lack of face-to-face communication that telemedicine entails might cause. Uh, Have you seen any evidence of, of that kind of problem? And what the evidence does show is that the, the telephone consultations or the, or the telehealthcare consultations quite consistently tend to be shorter than the face-to-face. They tend to be more focused with less opportunity for that informal information gathering. And really, I think what that needs is for the clinicians going into these consultations to be aware, to be actually safety netting more explicitly, to be um, taking the opportunity just to... Um, try and account for some of those non-verbal cues. Um, Mm. Once our um, training curricula catch up with the fact that the nature of the consultation is changing, there will be increased emphasis paid to to these these varied ways in which now people are consulting. Now, we've up to this point been talking about communication between doctors and patients. Do you think there's any, or have you seen any scope for doctor-to-doctor communication? Perhaps? Um, yeah, well, there, there is quite a lot of evidence in this area um, for for 30 plus years, really, particularly in relation to um, remote populations getting a specialist opinion. I think where the, where the developments have been quite interesting of late uh, is that we're, we're moving away from just that particular model to seeing whether it's possible to get an assessment in, in real time. There are also instances, so for example, in, in disaster context, so that there is plenty of, I think, anecdotal evidence of instances where this can be useful, subjecting that kind of work to, to sort of more rigorous study designs is, is inherently more challenging. Yes. I think I mean, the, the whole area of telehealthcare has 
there perhaps just needs to be a bit more sort of critical reflection about this, about the instances where this can be useful rather than it being seen as a kind of blanket panacea. And that's where it's likely to disappoint, I think. So you do see this as being an integral part of the future of medicine, though? Certainly we see the trends in other industries uh, and these are these are arising for a reason. Uh, they do have all sorts of knock-on implications for the way we structure our health service. And in due course, as the evidence continues to accrue, we'll probably be in a clearer position to determine, well, yes, these are sensible developments and these are more high risk and perhaps developments that we need to think more about and reflect more critically on. Professor Sheikh, thank you very much for joining us today. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with a look at the use of oxygen. Is it really always necessary? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.